Amen. You guys may be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, we're actually going to spend most of our time uh, in 1 Corinthians, but I want to uh, use Galatians chapter 5 specifically this morning to, tr- to propel us into our uh, main text. And if you have been following along with us, we've been going through our confession of faith, our statement of faith. We've been looking at how our statement of faith um, summarizes key doctrines in Scripture. And my prayer is that uh, you've been able to adopt some uh, biblical words, some biblical definitions that have perhaps been otherwise foreign to you, and uh, that we together are moving along in unity as we seek to be whole counsel of God uh, people. And so I pray that it's been challenging and encouraging uh, to you. I know that it's been uh, both of those things for me. Uh, But this morning, uh, our topic is uh, Christian liberty. Christian liberty, liberty of conscience. And uh, I'm excited that this has come uh, kind of after our time looking through the law of God. And so if you missed that last week, I would encourage you to check Check that out, but particularly we're going to look at how the Apostle Paul instructs us uh, on matters of conscience and how we can be a people uh, that develop a strong conscience and that love uh, others who uh, are in the process of developing a strong conscience, a biblical conscience, if you will, as well. But Galatians chapter 5, I want to read the first six verses, and this is a passage that we looked at uh, briefly last week that I just want to revisit for a moment because it's foundational. Um, to a discussion uh, on Christian liberty. And so the Apostle Paul, writing to the Church of Galatia, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, he penned these words. It says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You were severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness." Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you this morning for our time um, together, to be able to gather as your church, Lord. And God, I pray that you would use your word, God, you would use these prayers, God, you would use the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Lord, that is coming at the end of the service this morning to build us up in our faith, to strengthen us in Christ Jesus, Lord, so that we can be effective ambassadors for Christ, proclaiming his lordship to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that I would have you just see uh, uh, right out of the gate from this passage of Scripture, and again, this is fundamental to a discussion on uh, Christian liberty, and it's this. Christ 
has set us free, therefore live as free men and women. Christ has set us free, therefore live as free men and women. Right, which, is, which is counter to, I think, the spirit of the age. Right? We live in a, a, a day and age which is, promises freedom but is quite enslaving. And that, I want you to see this morning, that's, that's nothing new. The church here uh, in Galatia was being influenced by some false teachers, as we kind of briefly saw last week, um, by some deceptive legalistic philosophies that were drawing them away from the confession that Christ is sufficient. All right, Christ Jesus, in his life and in his death and in his bodily and eternal resurrection and his ascension and the authority that God granted to him in which he's ruling and he's reigning both in heaven and on earth, brought freedom. It brought freedom. Right? It brought the ultimate liberty. Our, our confession of faith says in chapter 1, or in ch- uh, chapter 21, paragraph 1, rather, says this, says the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the severity and curse of the law, and in their being delivered from the present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation, is also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. Christ, in his humanity, right? He's truly God, but he's, he's also truly man. His humanity gave us freedom, gave us reconciliation to God based on his good work alone. Right? Christ, he, he kept every jot and tittle of the law. Right, so, so we're to live in light of that, which means we aren't to live contrary to that. Right? It means that we aren't to be taken captive by philosophies of man that are in opposition to the reality that Christ Jesus has secured our freedom. Right? Paul t- tells the Galatians here in verse 1, quote, stand firm. Stand firm. Right? Stand firm in what? They were to stand firm in, in, in light of the freedom that Christ had purchased for them. Right? And as we saw last week, Paul wrote this, again, in response to legalistic teachings. Right? These teachers were telling the, the Galatian Christians, right, mostly made up of Gentile believers, that they had to be circumcised to be right with God. Right? That, There were teachers among them telling them that there were things to be done in addition to Christ's work that would make them right with God. In other words, it was Jesus plus circumcision. It was Jesus plus dietary laws, religious dietary laws. It was Jesus plus fill in the blank. And this sort of message is a false gospel. It's a false gospel, and it needs to be treated as such. 
Right? And, and again, this, we see this, we should see this clearly in our day and age. Yes, of course we know Christ is sufficient, but, but it's also these other things that, that you need to do in order to truly be right with God as well. Right? Anytime that someone behaves or speaks in such a way that it distorts or it adds to the sufficient work of Jesus, it's to be rejected. It's to be rejected. Paul's very clear here and and elsewhere that what is at stake is the sufficiency of Christ. He says elsewhere that if anybody comes, even if an angel comes and begins to preach to you a different gospel, which is what this is, he's to be anathema, which means he's to be cursed. Neither the, the church as a whole nor the individual Christian is allowed by Scripture to bind the conscience of a believer on their own authority. The binding of one's conscience is the right of God alone, and we're not allowed to usurp his authority on this matter. And on this issue, we see Paul, again, he gives a stern rebuke. Now, interestingly enough, in this chapter here in Galatians, his rebuke's not to the false teachers directly, right? although we see plenty, re- plenty rebukes of them elsewhere, but it's not to them directly here, at least in this section. But his rebuke is to those in Galatia. It's the Galatian Christians who allowed false teachers to bind their own individual consciences. Right? These Christians were being convinced that there was more to be done to be righteous before God, which is really the heart of legalism, isn't it? It's really at the heart of legalism with all its man-made traditions and its man-made rules. So, so Paul reminds the Galatians that it's Christ alone who makes them right with God, right? It isn't the Old Testament ceremonial law as we saw last week or some legalistic distortion of the ceremonial law. It's Christ alone, right? In effect, the Apostle Paul is asking, is what Christ did sufficient, right? Is Christ sufficient? Or, or is there something that I must do, right? Did, did Christ do 90% of the work and there's 10% remaining for me, All right? And as Christians, we have to respond by saying Christ has set us free. Christ alone has set us free. Christ alone is sufficient. Now, on matters not directly related to our salvation, because we can see the blasphemous nature of this just in Galatians chapter 5, and we could camp out here all day long. But what about issues that aren't necessarily tied to our salvation? Perhaps issues that are of much lesser importance. How are we to think about that? What, does the Bible have anything to say about that? All right. And as it turns out, the Bible has a lot to say about it. So, but for time's sake, I'm going to camp out in one place this morning, and I'm, I'm, I'm even going to stick with the illustration that the Apostle Paul is using uh, here for the church of Corinth, um, and just pray that the Holy Spirit of God will help us to apply this uh, as individuals and in his church in the right way. But turn with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm going to start with verse 23. And I'm going to read all the way to the first verse of chapter 11. So chapter 10, verse 23, and I'm going to go to chapter 11, verse 1. Okay, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. It says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Right? All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, 
but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For, and he quotes Psalm 24 here, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I love that passage. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, this hypothetical situation here, eat whatever set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Then chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Right? This is a, a significant passage for us today because um, we see this, and perhaps this could be a, um, one of the things that drives much conflict in the church of God, issues of liberty, uh, issues of, uh, of a believer's own conscience. And, and we, I think, see uh, two different types of ditches, which we'll cover in various ways this morning. One type of ditch is, is the sort of bully Christian that enjoys his liberties and that's ready to steamroll absolutely anyone that has wobbly knees about the whole ordeal. Uh, and then we have the other ditch, which is that uh, people through claiming victimhood assert raw power uh, or attempt to assert raw power um, on the individual consciences of believers. And we want to avoid both uh, of those pitfalls. So before I get into the nitty-gritty of our text this morning, let me just give you the setting just so that we can uh, perhaps get into a better focus what's going on here at the Church of Corinth. But if you were to flip and read, and I would encourage you to do this, chapters 8 to around chapter 11, you would see this dialogue in some shape, form, or fashion included. That's kind of the, the, uh, the Apostle Paul chapters 8 to 11 is addressing um, issues of liberty, liberty, uh, Christian liberty, liberty of conscience. And, and let me just give you a brief overview of chapters 8, 9, and just the beginning of 10 that leads us to verse 23, our uh, particular passage this morning. But in, in, in chapter 8, verse 1, we see the issue. Okay, the issue that the Apostle Paul is addressing is food, meat rather, offered to idols. Okay, the issue he's addressing is meat offered that was once offered to idols. And then in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 8, we see Paul state that idols, and by that he means pagan deities, they don't really exist. Okay, they don't really exist. There's one God and one Lord which is Jesus Christ, okay? And, and just for a little bit of background here, for those of you not familiar with the Church of Corinth, okay, the Church of Corinth was a church that was perhaps um, uh, gaining a congregation through the proclamation of the gospel. People were being saved out of paganism, and they were becoming Christians, okay? Yet they were still, uh, they're still the remnants of the, or the baggage of their former life, Okay, and also uh, the church was highly susceptible 
uh, to adopting the worldview and the pagan practices of pagan worshipers, okay? And so that's kind of the, uh, the setting that occasioned this letter, which uh, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, it, it uh, is a fair summary to call those two letters rebukes. Um, the, the Apostle Paul is rebuking uh, the church and trying to give order and handles on how they're to operate as believers. It was a wildly dysfunctional uh, church, and, um, and of course, not unlike the church of today. Okay? But we see that uh, Paul state in verses 4 to 6 that, that, that pagan deities don't really exist. There's one God, one Lord, Jesus Christ. On down in verse 7 of chapter 8, we see him say that there, there are younger, weaker believers that defile their conscience by eating food that was offered at one point to idols. They think that their eating of that food somehow endorses, if you will, idolatry. And, and so they're sensitive about that. In, in verse 9 of chapter 8, we see Paul charged the stronger, more mature believers to not allow their liberty of eating food offered to idols to become a stumbling block to those that are weaker in the faith. And we'll revisit this a few times as the sermon goes on this morning. If you were to drop down verse 12, we see Paul say that the stronger believer sins against the weaker brother if the stronger makes the weaker through his own actions defile his conscience. And then the first 23 verses of chapter 9, we see Paul, uh, in in sort of a testimonial way, he, he kind of talks about how he would give up his rights even as an apostle to win people to Jesus Christ. And then the first part of chapter 10, the first 22 verses of chapter 10, it is really a warning to flee idolatry. Okay, I think this eases the mind, uh, this is twofold, this, this charge to flee idolatry. It eases the mind of the weaker believer that to eat meat sacrificed to idols really isn't idolatry, but it's also a warning to stronger believers not to be led astray through their liberties into idolatry, okay? And so, so that kind of brings us, that's a little bit of what's, what's going on in the few chapters prior to getting here in uh, chapter 10, verse 23, and that's, that's where we are now. But before we, I mean, I'm just going to break this apart kind of piece by piece, and we'll work our way through it. But I want to look at verses 23 and 24, and it, again, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Our Christian liberty should build up the body of Christ. Our Christian liberty should build up the body of Christ. All right, Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Right? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. All right, Paul says something like this uh, a couple of chapters earlier. In chapter 6, verse 12, we see the Apostle Paul say almost verbatim, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but get this, but I will not be dominated by anything, is what he says in chapter 6, verse 12. And if we were to go back to chapter 8, verse 9, he says, take care that this right of yours, this liberty, okay, he's clearly speaking to the stronger, more mature believer at this point, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block 
to the weak. Right? Make sure that it doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. Right? Our, our Christian liberty, it can, it can quickly, because of our own sin nature, fall into idolatry. Right? And, and it falls into idolatry. And one of the ways that we can see that perhaps it's become something that we're holding with clenched fist is that when we're willing to devour other believers in our pursuit of liberty. Right? Our liberties, we've got to be mindful as Christians that our liberties aren't engaged with in a vacuum. Right? In one sense, yes, we're, we're individuals, but in a much truer in biblical sense, we're not individuals, right? We're a part of the body of Christ. To the unbelieving world, we're ambassadors for Christ Jesus, who has all authority. Right? When Paul says that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, what he's saying is that just because we have the right before God to do something doesn't mean that we should do it because it, it, it may not be beneficial, it may not be expedient as it relates to seeking the good of your neighbor. And, and seeking the good of your neighbor here is connected to the phrase build up, right? That word build up means to edify, it means to make one sturdy, if you will. And we're to make people, we're to live in such a way that we want to make people sturdy and Christ Jesus. So the question that Christians are really good at asking is, can I do fill in the blank? Can I do, right? The question that we're really bad at asking is, should I do fill in the blank, right? Or perhaps even better, does fill in the blank build up or edify people toward Christ Jesus? Or uh, is this causing someone to sin, Right? Is my engaging in this liberty causing someone to sin? Let's keep looking. Verse 25 and verse, uh, on down to verse 27 here. It says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's. Again, we're seeing him quote Psalm 24 here. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness Thereof, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. If you're taking notes, I'd have you jot this down. This world belongs to the Lord. Enjoy your liberties in light of that. Right? This earth, this world belongs to the Lord. Enjoy your liberties in light of that. Again, Paul quotes here from Psalm 24 when he says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I mean, this, this means that absolutely everything belongs to God, which means that everything that we have is given by him alone. In fact, Paul says this to, to young Timothy, who's pastoring the church of Ephesus. He tells this to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. He says, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Verse 5, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. What God has created is good, and it shouldn't be called or treated as evil. 
yet as fallen men, as men with sin, a sin nature, we've made perversions of that which God has called good and that which, of God, that which God has created. We've made perversions of it by becoming slaves to it, which is what the Apostle Paul is warning about, especially in the first 22 verses of chapter 10 here, right? And, and, I, and I think... Uh, in light of that, an overreaction can be that we call something good evil, right? We, we see the excess, we see that men can become enslaved in excess, and our reaction wrongly is that we begin to call that which is good evil, right? We, and we often do this because we're blame shifters, Right? We're blame shifters. Instead of taking personal responsibility for our excess, we blame a gift from God, and thus we blame God the gift giver. Right? It's as old as the garden. Right? Adam, in his first encounter with the Lord after the fall, right? after he took of the fruit of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he speaks to God on behalf of his family, what does he do? He says, the woman you gave me right? It's this good gift that you gave me. That's the problem. I was doing fine by myself, naming animals, <laughs> right? It's the, it's the gift that we're also, we, we don't want to take personal responsibility for any of this stuff, right? All right, we live in a society that doesn't want to take personal responsibility for anything, right? Just constant blame shifting, right? And, and you've heard me say this before, but if we want society as a whole to change, the church itself has to take personal responsibility for those things that even in our Christian liberty, we become slaves to. Now, this gets us to another aspect of this section here. In verse, If you look back again, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers... Okay, this kind of theoretical situation we have that the Apostle Paul, I don't know if this is, has actually happened or if he's just, you know, using this as an illustration for a teaching point, but he says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Right, some of you could be nudging your kids at this point. Right. But... Uh, but the point here is a, a weak conscience can be sinfully mastered as well, right? A weak conscience can be sinfully mastered as well. A weak conscience believer is one that thinks something is unclean and sinful when in reality it's not, right? And, and here we see how someone with a perpetually uh, undeveloped or weak conscience, which is one that's not being informed or strengthened by the Word of God, can, can put that undeveloped conscience, again, as it relates to the Word, before their role as being an ambassador of Christ by being hospitable or by, frankly, being uncomfortable to be around. Right? This is just as detrimental as the strong conscience believer turning what's good into an idol. This is just as detrimental as the strong conscience believer kind of force-feeding the weak believer to the defilement of their own conscience. All right, think of the picture, again, that the Apostle Paul is giving here. All right, a Christian who thinks eating meat that was previously offered to, uh, as a sacrifice to a pagan god goes over to the house of an unbeliever. All right, one of the primary purposes 
for a Christian, no matter how mature or how immature that Christian is, one of the primary purposes that Christians are engaging with unbelievers is with the hopes of influencing unbelievers to come and be a part of the kingdom of God, right? It's for us to help them see that Christ is Lord over all things. That should be the primary thing that motivates us in our relationship with unbelievers, and it should be the primary thing that motivates us in our relationship as we seek to remind one another of who we are in Christ, right? But here we have a believer, a weaker believer perhaps, that's been invited to the house of an unbeliever where meat that's been previously sacrificed to an idol is being served as the main dish. Right? And so this person sitting down, and they should be influencing this unbeliever toward Christ, but instead what happens is the Christian sits down at the table, looks at all the food that the unbeliever has hospitably prepared, and says, no thank you. No, thank you. All right, then the rest of the night, the, the non-Christian has to endure getting a lecture from an uninformed Christian about a matter in which God said there's liberty in. All right, it's like being held hostage at your own dinner table. All right, it's, it's, it's inhospitable. It makes people uncomfortable, and it's, it's, call, it's a calling of unclean, that which God has called clean. And when you constantly elevate a biblically underdeveloped conscience and you treat it as thus saith the Lord, you limit your ability to advance. One, you're being legalistic. Two, you limit your ability to advance the gospel. Three, you hinder your own ability to grow. And four, ultimately, calling that which is good evil is, is sinful. It's sinful. Humility is crucial here. So, so here we find a commendation of, of the good that God has created. Right? We certainly find a warning for strong, mature believers to not be led into idolatry by, through their liberty. Sinful. And then we see this pitfall for the weak believer that refuses to have his or her conscience strengthened by the Word of God. And we see the kind of ugly outworking of that uh, as it relates to them being an ambassador for Christ or even having fellowship with other believers. Next, let's look at verse 28 with me. It says, But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of the conscience. Okay, so now we, we, the, the illustration has developed a little bit more. There's a, there's a weak, weaker, perhaps newer believers that are at this dinner. There's some stronger believers that are at this dinner, and there's some unbelievers at this dinner. Okay, and so you, you, you sit down, meat is brought up, the thanks is given to the Lord for the meal, the stronger, mature believer begins to dig in, and then the weak believer kind of elbows and says... Do you, do, you, do you know what, what, what this was? Right. And, and what the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to see here is that love limits liberty. Or love should limit liberty. Right. Love limits liberty. Right. And perhaps this, this young believer was... There's a really good chance this unbeliever was converted out of paganism in which they participated in the sacrifices of... Uh, these burnt offerings to these pagan deities. 
Paul's instructions are clear. If someone says this food has been offered to idols, don't eat it for their sake. Someone says this food's been offered to idols, don't eat it for their sake. The person saying it, again, is considered by Paul to be the younger or the weaker believer. And he or she, in this passage, would violate their conscience to eat meat that was previously sacrificed to idols. It would feel like they were defiling themselves. It would feel like they were denouncing God. It would seem as if they were going back to their former way of life that they had repented from. And for the strong believer, the more mature believer, to turn around and say, eat it, would be detrimental to the weaker believer's faith. It would, call them to, it would cause them to feel as if they're sinning. It would be a form of inner torment for this weaker believer. It would be a form of restlessness for this weaker believer. It would cause them to perhaps even wrestle with their assurance of faith. So Paul says, don't eat it for the sake of the weaker brother, which is the one who is doing the informing here, and for the sake of their conscience. This is a very loving thing, and we should see how unloving it would be to cause a brother or sister in Christ to suffer by being bullish or arrogant or forceful or clinging to our liberty too tightly. Now, look with me in a moment. Look at Romans 14 with me. I'm going to read, read verses 13 to 23 because there we see Paul writing about the same issues to another church. Um, and, and, and I think it helps to shed light on the instructions that Paul is giving here uh, to the church of Corinth. It's, it's giving us uh, some more clarity as it relates to especially love-limiting liberty. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother, right? If you've been in church life for any length of time, you've heard that phrase, stumbling block, perhaps a lot. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The person that that would defile their conscience in the eating of something that they disagree with, there's no way that they could even engage with it with thankfulness in their heart. Therefore, they can't partake of it in faith. And anything consumed not in faith is 
according to Paul here, sinful. What's at stake here when we harmonize this passage with 1 Corinthians chapter 10? What's at stake here is causing another brother to stumble. It's causing another brother to stumble. And and by that, and we've got to listen close here, by that it genuinely means causing another brother to either actually sin, and you see this as it relates to, let's say, uh, drinking alcohol with an alcoholic, for example. Or you can cause another brother to stumble if they believe they're actually sinning, thereby violating their conscience. Okay, so, so this weaker brother in our passage would think that he's sinning against God if he eats meat that was once sacrificed to an idol. Right? That, that's what makes it unloving for the stronger brother to then persist in his liberty. Right? Now, this is a lot different than someone disagreeing with you about your Christian liberty, no matter how vehemently that they may disagree with you. Right? If the weaker brother said something along the lines of, I wouldn't eat that if, it, if I were you. You know it was sacrificed to an idol. Or I can't believe that you would meet, eat meat sacrificed to an idol. Don't you know that the, the world is watching? Or don't you know that, that you eating that offends me? I'm offended. Like none of these sorts of rebuttals from the weaker believer carry the weight of Scripture when it exhorts Christians to limit their liberty for the sake of another brother. None of these are legitimate excuses for a stronger believer to suspend his liberty. Believers are not to be held hostage by people who are perpetually offended about things, specifically about things that God says we have liberty on, no matter how much they protest. Right? It's, it's, it's like, again, be, it's like being held hostage by a two-year-old tantruming in a house. Right? To give in to that just perpetuates future tantruming. Right? And it's not really loving to a two-year-old if you continue to allow them to persist in that tantruming and thus make them the ridicule and the object of uh, being despised when you bring them out in public. It's a very unloving thing to do, in fact. One theologian, he he talks about this passage, and he says here, he says, incidentally, one should not, this is D.A. Carson, one should not confuse the logic of 1 Corinthians 8, which is, take care this right of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? D.A. Carson says this, he says, with the stance, um, we, we shouldn't confuse the logic of this with the stance that finds a strong legalist saying to a believer who thinks that eating meat offered to idols is acceptable. You may think that such an action is legitimate, but every time you do it, you're offending me. And since you're not permitted to offend me, therefore you must not engage in that activity. Right? The, the person who utters words to that effect... D.A. Carson says, is in no danger of being swayed by the actions of those who engage in the activity. They are using a manipulative argument to defend a misguided position in which they are convinced that the act of eating meat that has been offered to idols is invariably wrong. 
In other words, they operate out of the conviction that this activity lies in an indisputable column, and thus they find themselves at odds with Paul's wisdom and insight. Right? So we set aside our Christian liberty when we're dealing with a brother or a sister who would stumble, who would join us in the violation of their own conscience and has or who has no self-control and would stumble into drunkenness or gluttony. But we're not at all obligated to set aside our Christian liberty because it offends somebody. The Scripture is clear. It's love, right? biblically informed love, that limits liberty. Keep looking with me. And Paul goes on. Verse 29 to 31, and we see this even continues to bring more clarity here to this issue. It says, I don't mean that your conscience right, shouldn't, shouldn't um, hold your own, the strong believer now is what he's speaking to. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Why should my liberty, Paul speaking, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? You can jot this down. All things are for the glory of God. Right? All things are for the glory of God. The Westminster Shorter uh, Catechism, question one, says, what is the chief end of man? Right? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? The, 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 which, there's nothing off limits to that. There's no compartment of our lives in which we should not be bringing God glory, including our eating, including our drinking, including the engagement with all those liberties that have been secured for us by Christ. But Paul says, he's he's clear here about matters of conscience not being matters of sin. He charges believers there to remember all things done to the glory of God, right? That's doing all things to the glory of God. That's, in fact, what makes them fit, right? That's what makes them acceptable. Again, we partake in faith, right? That's, that's what makes all things an act of worship, whether or not that's on our radar or not, right? It, it, it's what makes your Sunday lunch or your Sunday dinner fit, the fact that it's received with thanksgiving as a blessing from God. All right, praise God from whom all blessings flow. All right, and Paul says in verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, right, if, I'm, if I'm to enjoy my liberty with thankfulness before the face of Almighty God, why am I denounced? Right, that word denounced means spoken evil against. Right, we, we don't speak evil of those who honor the Lord in the way that they live. Right? We don't speak evil of those who partake in those things which God has called good when they do it in thankfulness to Him. And just as the strong believer should not cause another believer to stumble by force-feeding them, so the strong believer should be settled in his or her mind on, on issues of liberty. Just because you limit your liberty and love doesn't mean that you begin to call what you're limiting sinful. Again, that's legalism. That's the 
the binding of one's conscience on matters that are not sin. Right? So, so instead of being enslaved by legalism, okay, which is one option here that we see, it's a non-option, but instead of that, Paul commends, his remedy to that is partaking with thankfulness to the Lord who's, who's king over all of creation, who's king over our, limit, our liberties. That's how we do all to the glory of God. Right? The, the, the glory of God is the goal in all things, including matters of conscience. And where the glory of God is the goal, the right balance will be struck. Right? Where the glory of God is the goal, the right balance will be struck. Right. And then finally, we see that we're, if you're jotting down notes again, you can jot this down, but we're responsible to not give offense for the sake of the gospel but we cannot control the reactions of others. We're responsible to not give offense for the sake of the gospel, but we cannot control the reactions. And I use the word reactions intentionally. Reacting is different than responding. We can't control the reactions of others. Verses verses 32 to uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. With the glory of God as the goal. Paul gives us some pretty tangible handles. He says, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. So he has in his view non-believers when he says Jews and Greeks, and he has in view believers when he says Christians, right? Christians are made up of Jews and Greeks. So that's the reason for the delineation here. Paul says, give no offense to believers, give no offense uh, to unbelievers. And that word give here is significant, right? The phrase give no offense means do not hurt or harm or cause anyone to stumble, Right? That's different than people taking offense. Right? Giving offense is different than people taking offense. Right? We live in a culture that's in a perpetual state of outrage. The question isn't whether or not there is outrage, just as the question here that the Apostle Paul is not seeking to ask or answer is about whether or not non-believers and believers are, were offended at the time. The question that should be asked is, is it legitimate Is it legitimate? Is there something the stronger believer should repent of? Have you dishonored God in your liberties, causing someone to stumble into violating their conscience? Then confession and repentance is required. Now, what we know Paul is not saying is fear man. Be a people pleaser. That's enslaving and it's ungodly. We're to fear God. And so what what he's saying and continually commending is this idea of not being a stumbling block for non-believers or believers by causing them to violate their conscience. Paul wasn't concerned about his personal liberties to the detriment of the lives of others. And his model for that was Christ, right? He concludes the section by saying as much, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And what sort of example is Christ in all of this? 
And Paul answers that question elsewhere. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, the, the humility and love of Christ and his red-hot drive for the glory of God led to the salvation of his people. Right? And he's our savior and he's our example. Therefore, our humility and our love and, and our conscience should be fueled by desire to ascribe glory to God that will in turn effectively build up our neighbors in Christ Jesus. So a few takeaways for us this morning. And again, these are in your bulletin, so don't feel like you, you need to jot them down. Mature Christians should be aware of elevating their liberty to the point of idolatry. Are you bullish, mean, or rude about your liberty? That is a good sign it is misplaced. Secondly, weaker Christians should seek to strengthen their conscience through the Scripture on matters of Christian liberty so that they may experience Christian fellowship as God intends and so that they may be effective ambassadors of Christ. Three, someone being offended does not equate to causing someone to stumble. And then fourth, the glory of God in the building of his church is the goal in all things. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we were able to have in it this morning, God. And I pray that you, uh, for the weaker believers here, God, I pray that they would, through your word, strengthen their conscience, God. I pray for the stronger, more mature believers here, Lord, that they would um, be humble and, Lord, not seek to elevate their liberty to the place of idolatry, Lord. And so, God, what we need, all of us, is humility. And, God, I pray for the non-Christian here this morning, God. I pray that they would taste the freedom that only Christ Jesus brings through them confessing and repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus. And so, Lord, we love you and we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.